This is KMTT, and this is Ezra Beck, and this is the second week of the Shi'ur on uh, major theological issues in uh, Judaism. Last week, we discussed the question, which I defined as, where God and man meet. And in a nutshell, I claimed that in, in Judaism, the point at which God and man meet is in man's existence. I tied that to the concept of Tzalem Elohim. I tried to find what Tzalem Elohim meant. What is the image of God? Man is created in the image of God. And my claim was that that doesn't refer to his facial features, but it refers to his potential. That man has infinite potential to rise and improve and become more and more perfect. Today I would like to somewhat expand and try to understand uh, this notion, what is really being implied by saying that God is present in man's potential. And I will begin by contrasting that once again to a claim that would say that man is present, that God is present not in man's potential, but in something about man or about a man in actuality. What actuality I'm using as a, a contrary term to potentiality. So I mentioned last week, as I thought, a, an answer to the same question. Where is God found in the world? The, uh, the Christian answer, which says that God is found in the world in the existence of one particular man, the man who was deified by Christianity. Now, it's not only that Judaism has said much more than that by saying that God is found in every man. But also, that Judaism is saying what appears to be less. When a Christian says that God exists in Jesus, he means exists in actuality. Jesus is God. But no Jew would ever say that any man, or all men, or any most wonderful an exalted man is God in actuality. That would be that would be heresy or even absurd to the mind of a Jew. My original question was what could bridge the infinite gulf between man and God? And the Jewish answer says that the bridging of the gulf doesn't in any way minimize or lessen the gulf. The gulf is still infinite. No man is in actuality God. He, in fact, is infinitely different, infinitely far, and infinitely insignificant when compared to God. The notion of Tzedem Kim, as I explained last week, is a notion of potentiality. At one and the same time, as you are, if we would take a, 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 a freeze frame, if I take a picture, if I weigh you as you are now, then you're not infinite. You are what you are. You're equal to yourself. To use the words of the Torah, you are in the image of man. The thing which defines you 
as you are now in actuality is what you are, which is not God in any way whatsoever. Nor could we ever agree to in any way uh, uh, fudge the distinction between where God is and what man is. That, that's such a basic distinction in Judaism to understand that God is there and you are here. But nonetheless, I'm saying, and at first glance this appears to be less than, than the alternative answer. I'll try to show in a minute why I think it's more, but, but why it appears to be less is that man's ability to ascend, man's ability to perfect himself, that is where God is found. That is a kind of presence of God. That is the Tzedem Elohim. And it's simultaneous. At one and the same time, you are, as you are, infinitely less than God, but as someone who is going in a certain direction, as someone who is potentially more than he is, then it could be said that God is there. When I say you could be potentially more than you are, I mean you could potentially be anything without, without limit, but... And, Right now, you are potentially one step better than you are. Both what you are and the next step, both of them are limited. But the passage from one to the other, the ability to transcend oneself, is transcendence. And transcendence is God. When transcending yourself, you are transcending the bounds of created natural order. And in, in, in the history of Judaism... We've used different metaphors, different, different ways of trying to express this very, very difficult concept to actually put your finger on. How something could be true and not true at the same time. So the first word, which I used last week, is Tzedem Elohim, which is different than Elohim. Adam Rishon, Adam Chava, you and I are not Lahavdim, Elohim, but you are B'Tzelem Elohim, which doesn't mean as perhaps but we don't think about it too deeply, we might be inclined to say, it means, well, an imperfect image of God. The relationship of a bad painting to the original. No, it's not a bad painting. If God did it, it's a perfect painting. The difference between a Tzelem Elohim and Elohim is what I explained last week. It's that you never are Elohim, but your very existence is defined by your relationship to that that paradigm. The paradigm of man is is to be God. It's not a hope for the future. Between you and I, philosophically, we know that even in the future you won't ever reach the end of the road. It's not the hope for the future. It's what defines you in the present. You are he who whose existence is defined by the aspiration to become Nothing less than God. Another, I would call it a metaphor, another metaphor used is the term found in Chazal, Tzadikim Merkava Lashchina. The righteous are, translation, the chariot of the presence of God. The word Merkava, chariot, it's, it's, it's the opposite, it's the, the, the parallel to the word rochev. It's what a rider rides on. And, and the Midrashim would say this explicitly. They talk of the relation between the rider and the mount, and that which is being ridden. 
הרוכב והמרכב. In Breshit Rabbah it says, look at the difference. Usually, when you have a rider and a mount, and a thing which is being ridden, so the one who is in charge, the one who is who has the power, is the Merkav. He supports the Rochev. In the case of the Jews and God, it's the other way around. The Rochev, God, is supporting the Merkav. In other words, it takes almost literally the metaphor of God riding on man, but points out that theologically, of course, man is dependent on God. So there's, there's a metaphor which is trying to explain how as created beings, we get everything from God. We are dependent on Him. Nonetheless, the proper description would be that in some sense, God is writing on us. And I think this is a way of expressing what I tried to explain last week. Namely that, in terms of creation, God created us. In terms of God's presence in the world, that's totally dependent on ourselves. God is present where, where we reflect God. The word reflection, incidentally, is another attempt at expressing a metaphor for, I don't mean you are God, I mean you're reflecting God. Selim, Image and reflection, of course, are very, very, are very, very similar. The word Shechina itself, I said Merkavah Shechina, the chariot of the divine presence. Divine presence is a, it's a standard, and I, I, I think the most useful translation in terms of speaking and sentences for the word Shechina. The word Shechina actually means not that he's present. That's not no chachut. It's Shechina. Shechina means indwelling. Shechina means dwelling, but it always follows in Hebrew with a bet. Shochein b, dwelling in something. So the shechina, this noun, which is embedded by Chazal from the verb lishkon, the shechina is the indwelling of God, and indwelling is, is it means literal. God, the, it's also a metaphor. God dwells in something. The obvious halachic answer is that under the best of conditions, God dwells in the holy temple. But the verse which introduces that idea in Pashat Truma, of course, famous verse says, "The Asuli Mikdash, and you shall make for me a temple, the Shachanti Bitocham, and I shall dwell within them, within the Jews, within the Jewish people." Now, you can't treat that literally. What, as a metaphor, what does it mean that God dwells within the Jewish people? I would say that it's the notion that I've been trying to explain. God's presence in the world is inherent. It's, it's indwelled. It's, it's within the living existence of the people. Now, but it's only a dwelling within. It's not that God is the Jewish people. There's a later phrase which is more explicit and more extreme and I think should be therefore toned down in the sense that I've said, Kutubicha, Yisrael Chadu. God and the Jewish people are one. If you, if you understand that literally, then that from Jewish eyes is heresy. It should be understood the way the Pasuk says, V'shachanti bitocham. God fills. God's presence in, in the world is the interior content as something which lives in, the living life in the Jews who 
who accept God. Now, in the context of the Pasuk, it's even better. Vasuli Mikdash. They do things. Vashachanti Vitochan. It's not that their existence is the house of God. It's their activities. It's their doing things. It's their climbing. It's their aspiring. It's their, be, it's their self-perfection, which is the Vashachanti Vitochan. The idea of Vitochan suggests another metaphor found in the Torah explicitly, especially in the way the Ramban understands it. So in the beginning of Breshit said when man was created, nishmat God fashioned man, and then he was inert, dust and dirt, and then God exhaled into his nostrils the soul or the breath of life. The word nishmat chayim, nishama, which we always translate as soul is cognate, it's morphologically equivalent to the word nishima, nishama and nishima. Nishima means breath. Of course, if it says he exhaled by yipach, then what God was exhaling was breath, but that's the nishama of man. In other words, the Pasuk says that the, the, the breath, the exhalation of God is the soul of man. And the Ramban comments on the spot, called the napach, midilei napach. Anyone who exhales is exhaling from within himself. The idea of God giving man life by exhaling, don't think of it as being movement of air. Think of it the way, well, we're not being scientifically thought about it, undoubtedly the way Chazal thought about it, that the breath is the life. You always, still in English, you'll speak of the, of the breath, a person's breath as being his life. God, from within himself, blew himself, exhaled himself into the first man, and then he became alive. That's not said about any other creature. Biologically, very similar, the breath of man, the breath of creatures, but the Pasuk says that other creatures were created and were alive. And man was um, susurcated. He was given life by receiving the inner breath of God, called the nafach, he who exhales, me delay from within himself, he exhales. So this, again, this is a metaphor. What it's trying to say is that, not that God is actually found in you, but the, the content, the living part of man is a reflection, is something which is one hand here in part of man, and the other hand comes from God. Jews have always understood this, but not necessarily made it explicit. There's a common phrase found that man is part natural, part divine. The question is, the parts are in 50%, 50%. They're not your leg from here and your leg from there. Man, in actuality, is a creature, like any other creature. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous to, to try to understand it in any other way. Man can be reduced to his biological functions, and he's exactly like any other creature, a little smarter, a little this, a little that. But man, in terms of his limits, in terms of what he can be, that's, that's divine, because transcendence is divine, because creating ex nihilo, creating that which is not from that which already, already exists, surpassing yourself, is truly new creation. That's by definition divine. When I say divine, I don't mean it resembles divine. I mean it really is God. It's Selim Elohim. And that's what God, and that's what God has found. 
So, on the one hand, what I said was correct. This is somewhat less than saying that, oh, God is in the world. The way a Christian would say it, at least of a point 2,000 years ago. And many, some kinds of Christians would say it about statues or places or relics. Catholics would say it about a certain sacrament that recreates the very blood and flesh of God. So, if you say that God exactly exists in the world, and that's coming to, to provide a religious point of focus, you really then have to somehow expand it so people can be able to, to get to it. And therefore you reproduce it, whether it's in icons and Eastern versions of Christianity or in the sacraments and Catholicism and statues. Judaism says less than that. God is never here or here or here or here. That's classic. Abu Dazara, as Chazal understood it. And it is therefore forbidden to make a statue of God, which would then you could say, ah, that is God. A human being is not a statue of God. He's not a pestle. He's a tzelem. Very similar words, but it's, it's different because, as I said, it's not actuality. It's, it's potentiality. But the truth is, it's actually not so much less. It's actually more. Because to the extent and so long that man is, a man is, truly surpassing himself and approaching God then I think I think in Judaism we would be willing to say that God is actually there you can't quite grasp him you can't put him into a box you can't pour him into the the wooden statue because he's act, because God's presence is based on the activity it's always in what could be tomorrow and therefore God is somewhat elusive you can't grab him and put him in the corner and say, I have a God in my house. He's there. He's in that corner. That's iconography. That's a statue. And that's about Azar. God is not here. He's in the next step. God is in where you, and that's why God is in you and not in the house and not in the statue. God is in you, but not also not in your body, not in you as you are. He's in you in the sense that you can become a reflection of God, you're perfecting yourself as a reflection of God's perfection as you do it, and as you continue to do it. You stop and take stock and say, okay, I've made, I'm using that word very carefully, I've made, I've, I've created a situation where God is here, okay, now let me, now me look at it. If you stop, He's not there. It's always one step ahead of you. God is always ahead of you. And in your trying to close that gap, that's where you meet God. When I say you meet God now, I think you really meet God. Of course, this creates a tremendous difference between idolatry in one of its forms and Judaism. You don't meet God by having God being external. He's in this idol and myself being here. God is in this thing that I eat and I eat God or I touch God or I come back. You meet God in the activity that you're doing. It's internal, but also internal and dynamic. I am totally in contact with God. I need davek. The Hebrew, Hebrew word for meeting, the religious Hebrew word, is davekut. Torah says, ledov kabo. What does God want for man? From the Jewish people, what does God want from you? To fear Him, to love Him, to do His mitzvot. U ledov kabo. To, I'm going to use the official 
King James translation because modern words don't quite match up. To cleave onto him. If you know what the word cleave means, you're at a loss. It's an old word. In modern Hebrew, lidavka, devik means glue. It's to stick to God. To cleave onto him. You meet God with no distance between you, even though the distance is infinite. Because you're not meeting him as I would meet the table or the statue. Which I would, chas v'shalom, be sacrificing to or bowing to. You meet God as he is the next second and you are the present second. Or even better, you are the passageway from step A to step B. And God is also the passageway from step A to step B. Step A is not God, step B is not God. But the movement, that is God in the world. The most obvious halachic or Jewish experiential expression of this is the mitzvah of tshuva. First of all, in terms of definition, the pasuk in which we begin the haftarah of Shabbat tshuva, tshuva Hashem ad Hashem elokecha, is interpreted by Chazal as the word ad, return Israel onto the Lord your God, ad, up until God, the Lord your God, Gidolat tshuva, greatest tshuva, shemigaat ad kisei hakavod. To return onto God, it doesn't say to return onto the way that God told you to do. It also doesn't say, in what perhaps would be a modern uh, psychological and spiritual statement, return onto yourself, your true self. As Shakespeare said in Hamlet, Polonius, unto thine own self be true. Tshuva brings man back to God, meaning literally, in terms of the dimension. One can with Tshuva become Kiseyakavod. One can reach the, the, the throne of glory. Now we all know you can't. It's infinitely away. It will take you an infinite amount of time. It will take you an infinite amount of growth. It's not going to happen. But the answer is yes, it does happen because Tshuva is by definition, at least the aspiration and the movement not to point A, not to become good or better. It's the expression to become perfect. And man can be perfect. Not in actuality. But the definition of man is potentially perfect. Yidolat Shuvah is the mitzvah which expresses as an action what I call Tzadam Elohim as a state. If your creator is at Tzadam Elohim, then your life is meant to be, and you, you're truly at Salaman Okim, when you're engaged in Teshuvah, in closing the gap between yourself and God. If you've sinned, it means returning. And if you haven't sinned, it means in just moving. And of course, the word Lashuv implies that you were there once. In what sense were we there? Well, we were created with Samuel Kim, so we were at that point, even though we weren't at that point, therefore we could return to that point, even though we'll never reach that point. Since that is the meaning of the mitzvah of tshuva, we of course realize that tshuva then is not a mitzvah that you do once a year, only when you've had a particular fall, a particular avera, that you have to uh, do repentance and, and, and accept upon yourself not to do it again. Tshuva in that sense is the continual movement of a man closer and closer 
an infinite movement, closer and closer to God. It will, therefore, perhaps not be that surprising that there's a very big difference between tshuva in Judaism and tshuva in that system that I've taken as being my foil for this discussion because I think it was it was not an obvious choice. It isn't simple uh, idolatry in the ancient Roman sense. Repentance in Christianity. Christian thought, which you know, surrounds us in the Western world, speaks very often of repentance, but doesn't actually believe that it works. In other words, it works only because God appreciates what you've done and therefore likes you. You can't actually redeem yourself. It's, it's so deeply sensed in Christianity. A man is condemned. It's called original sin. So turning to God is is turning to God. It's it's wanting wanting to be like God. It's 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 asking him to save you. True repentance in Christianity is asking God to save. Repentance in Judaism is hard work. It's changing yourself. Can you change yourself? That's the principle I've been speaking about. Yes. You can change yourself and infinitely change yourself. What should you aspire to be? Should you aspire to be a little bit better? No. You should be a tzaddik gama. You should be a tzaddik And repentance means taking upon yourself, in the words of the Rambam, that all the sins that you have committed, I will not repeat any one of them ever again. And in so much more mystical formulations found in the Tfilot on Yom Kippur, later Tfilot, I repent from my sins because I wish to be a, a chain. I wish to be a pipe. I wish to be a conduit between the world and God. Reaching on the one hand, starting here on the ground, the head, the end of this pipe, which is me. I am a nukva. I am a pipe of, of connection, which is all the way up, all the way up to God. Shuva Yisrael Ad Ad Hashem Repentance in Judaism is revolution when it's talking about turning away from sin and becoming good. And it's continual evolution when it speaks of what a man lives for. But every step of the way is a real creation of a point of contact between man and God. And I would add in this I have to admit, I'm not sure everyone would agree to, but I think it's implicit in what I've described, is that how does tshuva work? How is it possible that if a person repents, that his sins disappear? I understand that he became a better person, but it's responsibility for the past. And the answer that was always given is that God can do that. The answer that Rabbi Akiva gave in the Mishnah in Yoma is, Mikveh Yisrael Hashem. Ma just as a mikveh purifies the the defiled, so too God is kapara. He is atonement for sins. But what is the another metaphor? What does the metaphor here say? Person is immersed in God. If you do tshuva, how do you become immersed in God? Based on what I described, 
The answer is clear. When a person is moving towards God, he is, he and God are, are one. In the movement. Not in his actuality. But in the movement. And so therefore, yeah, it is automatic. It's not a response. Not necessarily a response of God. Oh, you've been good. I'll cross off three of your, of your sins. When a person is being godly, when a person is being Tzedem Elohim, then yes, his sins are drowned. They are immersed in the infinity of God's goodness. And the one or two sins he did, three or four sins he did, the finite number of sins he did, are simply mathematically eliminated in the infinitude of the divinity that he is at that moment reflecting. Now this doesn't mean that take an extreme example that one should pray to men no it's forbidden the Ramam calls that considered to be one of the dogmatic principles of Judaism that you pray to nothing else no one else no to people not to angels only to God because when you address somebody when I look at somebody who's sitting across the room for me no no he's only a man he's only an angel definitely not infinite not God. And yet, at every moment of the way, we can sense God in ourselves as well as in others. You can never put your finger on it. You can't pray to it. You can't hold it. But it enlivens. It enlivens everything we do. And therefore, when we do approach the actual God, who has no statue and no form and nothing which we can draw or put in the room with us, but we know is there, because He spoke to us at Har Sinai, when we approach the actual God, we're not doing it as mere men, as merely created things, as though we were trees or kangaroos or very intelligent monkeys. We approach God. Remember, we're approaching your movement. When you move towards God, when you open up your mouth to Davin, which is itself an action of bringing yourself closer to God, then you do so not as A, approaching B, but in this union that we've described of at that moment, in that movement, then I myself reflect God. It's not the speech of infinitely far infinitely exalted it's the speech of the infinitely fought infinitely exalted both of whom are now one and the same or at least in very close contact the infinite gulf is bridged completely the distance is reduced to zero without the distance being being reduced Because moving together, moving towards God, doesn't eliminate the distance, but it spans it. It brings God into this imperfect and needed to be perfected world. We will continue next week in uh, seeing some more of the implications of this notion in various areas of halacha, specifically in tefillah different parts of tefillah. And uh, 
you will see how, in fact, that the life of mitzvot in general is based on uh, this basic notion. Kultur.